Hello and welcome back for episode 44 of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. In this episode, I am proud to have back a friend of the show, Dr. Davey Allman, who actually becomes the first repeat guest on the podcast. And our first episode together, which was episode 30, Introduction to Biomimetic Dentistry, has become the most downloaded episode of the podcast series thus far. And that is why I'm super excited to be having Davey Allman back for the next two episodes and talking more biomimetic dentistry, talking how to raise your game in restorative dentistry and how to produce long-lasting direct restorations, which, let's face it, for a lot of the new grads, for a lot of dentists in general, is pretty much the, you know, the bread and butter of dentistry, and we need to really be able to execute these restorative procedures at a high level predictably. In this episode, we just jump right back in. We talk about different restorative procedures, different bonding protocols, and um, towards the latter part of episode two, which I should release in a few days' time as well, we kind of have some fun and and pull together some hierarchies of ranking of you know rubber dam versus no rubber dam versus which bonding system you use versus bulk fill versus you know layering composite techniques. We just really kind of went on and uh, we recorded about an hour and 30 minutes. So that's why I've kind of broken it up into two episodes for you guys uh, so you can consume it in more digestible lengths. So please, if you have heard the previous episode, be sure to check it out before you listen to these two upcoming episodes. Again, the first time we had Dr. Davey Almond on was episode 30 of the Newbie Dentist podcast in an episode called Introduction to Biomimetic Dentistry. As always, uh, please reach out to me on Instagram at Newbie Dentist. If you have any questions or feedback, I do love to hear from you guys. And if you are a fan of the show, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes. It really does help the show get more exposure and grow at a faster rate to reach more people. Also, if you do enjoy it, you know there's no better compliments than uh, you know referring the show and showing these episodes to your friends, classmates, and colleagues. And for those of you who have been doing that and reaching out, I really do appreciate the support, guys. And I'm excited to bring you guys some fantastic content over the next little bit. So, without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Dr. Davey Allman. Hello and welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, the safe place for newbie dentists to connect, collaborate, learn, and grow. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to provide high-quality and high-value content for all the newbie dentists out there. With your host, Dr. Omerizami. So I'm here with uh, Dr. Davey Allman, who is back for a second episode after a pretty successful episode one introduction to biomimetic dentistry. We chatted a lot about a lot of topics and certainly I think for me personally changed the way I've been kind of doing my fillings and, and looking at adhesive dentistry and rubber dam and things like that. And I've heard a lot of good feedback from other people as well who've kind of you know, learned a lot, took down some notes and kind of changed the way they're doing things. So Davey, thanks a lot for uh, coming back on. I know you're in a busy period with your life and kind of transitioning in your practicing world. So thanks for coming on again. Well, I'm really happy to be here. It's kind of a, a flip of the flip of the coin. Last time you were transitioning from uh, Canada to Australia and now I'm kind of getting ready to finish up my, my army obligation and uh, head to I don't know. They say greener pastures, but it's probably not. Whatever. <laughs> Where are you going to be working? Have you lined up work? Are you working with your yeah, dad? Yeah, I'll be working with my dad in uh, uh, just outside of Salt Lake City. Yeah. 
Okay, that's exciting. So it's like a, it's like a full biomimetic practice, or yep, yep. The plan is to never cut a tooth down for a crown. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. So tell me a little bit. I mean, last time we didn't get too much into like the you know, maybe the fin- financial or business side of things is going to quickly talk, ask, ask you about that. Cause I'm that, you know, since we talked last time, I've been a little bit more, you know, thoughtful of my restorative dentistry and uh, adhesive dentistry and things, but it's, it's really time consuming. So <laughs> feelings that, you know, I used to take me, you know, maybe like 40 minutes or something to do like a quadrant. Now I'm like spending an hour and a half or like hour, 40 minutes sometimes to do things. So in terms of, you know, reimbursements and time spent and things, what have you found? I know you're, you know, in the army, maybe that's not a big concern because you're not necessarily, I don't know how it works, but I don't know if you, I'm sure you're not charging people for the procedure. So how is it going to be for you? Or uh, what have you found with people that you talk to that do this type of dentistry? So the biggest thing is you have to really educate the patient that what you're doing is totally different than the dentist down the street. And it can start with just as simple as, Hey, I'm going to put a rubber dam over your, your teeth. We don't use the word filling. That's the F word. It's a curse word. (laughs) You know, in my language, But the main thing is you just got to say to do good dentistry takes time. And as you become more conscientious of the work that you're doing, and if you are documenting cases, then all of a sudden you will understand that there is no shortcut to fixing a tooth when it's structurally compromised. Now, when I say structurally compromised, that just indicates that when the tooth is under function, that the tooth is bending and flexing more than a natural tooth and patients will understand that in order to save your more of your tooth, we're going to have to employ techniques that are different than what got your tooth into that position uh, to begin with. And it's usually a a previous restoration, correct? So I try and always refer to my work as restorations rather than fillings. And the most important thing is that you get the skills and the techniques that you can charge for your time because there are techniques that will allow a direct restoration last as long as an indirect restoration. But unless you understand how to stress relieve that restoration, then it'll have a lower longevity. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, that's some of the stuff that we talked about last time with the, you know, obviously like the layering, the one big thing that is kind of resonated with me a lot was like, you know, after you do that first sort of layer you know, you put your etch in your bond and a little bit of flow, but you need like let it sit for a little bit of time before it's just to allow that bond to like mature before you kind of start stacking the other layers on top. So what other factors are there in that like stress relief that you talked about? So I want you to think of like a, like a can of soda. So before you've opened a can of soda and let's say you drop that can of soda or better yet, let's, let's talk a bottle, a bottle, a bottle is a better um, uh, example. So what, builds up in, in that uh, dropped can of or dropped bottle of soda it's pressure pressure right and so if you decide to open it right after you've shaken uh, that bottle of soda or you drop that bottle of soda what ends up happening it shoots everywhere. it shoots everywhere and so the the pressure or the stress that's accumulated in that bottle of soda now has to escape somehow right yeah. now if you let it escape fast right after it happened, what's going to happen to you? It's going to make a mess. It's going to make a mess. It's going to get all over you. But that's just, you know, the physics of, you know, a carbonated beverage under pressure is that 
if you relieve the that built up pressure, it's going to, you know, explode. Now, what happens if yeah. you wait uh, 20 minutes before you open that? It calms down. It calms down. The pressure. You know, maybe yeah. it'll, it'll still, you know, fizz out, but it'll, but it has time for the, the pressure to diminish. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Great analogy. And so it's the same thing with the, a polymerized restoration. So I don't care what, what anybody says. It's like, you're not going to eliminate all the polymerization stress in a restoration, but what you can do is you can control for the time that that polymerization reaction and that stress dissipates. So if if you decide to place your adhesive and do a quick fill and then light cure it. It's just like opening a, a bottle of soda after it's been sh- uh, shaken. Yeah. And what ends up happening is that stress and that needs to be relieved. And where does it typically delaminate or relieve the stress right at the bonded interface or in really yeah. bad materials and very weak materials like a glass ionomer, it'll actually crack in the restorative material. So neither of those are, yeah. are great um, solutions, but if you allow the bond to mature, and then if you slowly layer your composite in low C, C factor increments, then that, that polymerization stress will dissipate more and there'll be less strain and uh, forces pulled on the rest of the tooth. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So just a review from last time. So you said, you know, with the layering technique, the best way to like lower the C factor, you know, is not necessarily like the oblique composites just to do like thin flat increments. Is that right? Correct. So when you're thinking about a, a cavity prep, there's what my dad has referred to as the hierarchy of bondability. So in different areas of the tooth, there are different bond potentials that can influence where the the polymerization will want to move towards. So anytime that you shine the light and you cure a material, you know, composites, it's dumb. It it wants to do whatever the laws of nature want it to do. And it'll tend to go to areas that are dry or quick forming. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, when people will say, oh, the best bond is to enamel, that is, that's a false statement. But it really depends on how do I how do I say this? It wants to go to the fast bond, and the fast bond is is enamel because there isn't any pulpal fluid that's uh, that it's competing with, and there's no uh, collagen. But if you allow yeah. uh, these monomers to infiltrate and to really adhere to a tougher material rather than a brittle material like uh, dentin compared to enamel, then the bond potential can actually be towards the dentin rather than the enamel as far as the higher bond. And so, oh, interesting. so the deeper that you go into a prep, what are you dealing with? Dentin, like bigger tubules and stuff? Exactly. So the lumen size of the, the dental tube, tubule will be two times or even three times the size as the, the tubule size closer to the DEJ. So you, mm-hmm. so you have the potential of more pulpal fluid being entered into your bonding um, field, correct? And then yeah. what else do you have the deeper that you go into into a tooth? So you're going to have more 
organic material rather than inorganic. Okay. So there'll be more uh, collagen and less hydroxyapatite encrusted collagen. Does that make sense? So yeah. the deeper you are in the tooth, you have more organic material that you have to bond to, more collagen and less uh, dry material like hydroxyapatite or hydroxyapatite encrusted collagen crystals like you do in superficial dentin. So the bond strength in deep dentin is different than the bond strength to superficial dentin, and it's different than uh, the bond strength to enamel. Now, each of these have different bond potentials, but they all have, they're all time dependent. And so if you can allow the, the slower maturing bonds uh, a, a head start before they're um, stressed with, with a restorative material, then you're actually able to stay bonded in these, in these deep preps. Okay. So time is a big factor. So is it still like that remains like the, you know, five minutes to get like 90% of the maximum bond strength, like you're saying last time, like, is that a pretty good rule to kind of practically live by Yeah, in terms of these restorations? It is the, I don't know, it would be like one of the unwritten rules of biomimetic <laughs> dentistry is that you need to allow yeah. time for your bonds to mature. Um, yeah. In every prep, you're not going to have, you know, ideal material to bond to in every area of the prep. And so if mm -hmm. you live by this five minute rule, then you're giving those areas where you're bonding to maybe some uh, outer carries or inner carries time to, you know, fully mature. And even though the, the, that bond potential will be a lot less than, you know, certain areas that are carries free. Yeah it will be able to withstand the, the polymerization stress on top of it. Okay. That's good. That's what I've been doing recently. So say for example, if I've been like doing a quadrant, like I'll prep like the three or four teeth that I'm working on. And then I'll do that base like resin coating layer, like on the deeper ones first, and then I'll go and finish off the other fillings and I'll come back to it. Just exactly. allow as much time as possible. So I thought I found that a pretty good workflow. Yeah, and that's the best way to be efficient in, uh, restoring these teeth. And so it's not, you know, you can either, you know, have a hard stop with a timer that says, okay, we're not going to put any restorative material in this preparation until, you know, my five minute timer goes off or seven minutes yeah. or whatever you want to, you know, time it, or you can go on and work on the next tooth. And if you were working on the next tooth, then you're allowing that, um, that bond to form in a stress-free environment. That is the, the correct thing to do. And I'm really glad that uh, you've been able to kind of switch some of your, your thought processes, you know, from the last time that we interviewed and implement, you know, something that will benefit the longevity of your restorations. Yeah. Another thing I want to kind of, you know, uh, talk to you about today. Um, and then, you know, I put that kind of poll out on Instagram as well. Something that I've been sort of, I mean, where I work, I work in a pretty like some like lower socioeconomic kind of areas. There's a lot of teenagers or like early twenties with like really bad caries. And we have like these bombed out teeth that, you know, there's like a little hole in the occlusion and then I open it up and it's just, it's really deep. So I've been kind of struggling a little bit with caries endpoints, like when to stop, where to stop, how much of like that soft stuff to leave, um, where the pulp may be to just like try not to expose. And, you know, luckily 
just like anecdotally, you know, the ones that I've been doing and then I follow them up for like the next quadrant, like a week or two weeks. It's not very often that people complain of like post-op sensitivity or anything like that. So from that regard, I'm pretty happy with it. But in terms of just like longevity and, you know, future pulpal health and things, what's your thoughts on like the carries endpoints and like when to stop, where to stop and kind of those type of things? So when I stop is based solely on, you know, measurements and these measurements are uh, the ones that were published in the 2012 paper by my father and Pascal Magne. And that's talking about five millimeters from the uh, occlusal cable surface, uh, mm-hmm. pulpally, and then going interproximally uh, three millimeters from the, um, the marginal ridge of the adjacent tooth. And so as okay. goes, uh, it goes, uh, starts to, constrict you know you can just take a perio probe lay it flat and you can measure you know three millimeters um from that or my favorite technique is to actually know the the width of my burr and my favorite burr to use about uses about a 016 round diamond so 1.6 millimeters and i you know in these deep boxes if i'm just you know the there's basically no enamel in these deep boxes and so if i'm cleaning with that 016 i'm cleaning about two millimeters uh axially and if i stay, yeah. and if i stay in that safe zone of that diameter of that burr i'm just not going to expose a nerve on the axial wall i mean i think yeah. i'm in the minority i don't use a lot of slow speed most of my preparations are with with high speed and okay. go yeah. solely off of my carries indicator and the stains that that's, that's giving me. And then the, I stop at the measurement and then just make sure that that peripheral seal is completely clean where there's no pink and no red. And if I see no pink and no red, then I know that there is no denatured collagen in that area. And when I bond to that area, the hierarchy of bondability will be anywhere between 40 and 60 megapascals. Whereas mm-hmm. the pink and the, the red, I will have much lower bond strengths, but the risk of the benefit of removing that disease tissue doesn't outweigh the benefits of, you know, a, a potential pulp exposure. Yeah. That's really cool. So is this based, like, are these measurements just based on like average anatomy of that's your safe zone, like five millimeters occlusally, three millimeters? Exactly. So so the best thing to do is is to save some of your extracted teeth, you know, cut them and then measure from, you know, a cusp tip down to a pulp horn and it's about six millimeters. And, you know, if you stop at five millimeters then you know, you have, you know, a millimeter of, of Denton to play with. So if you're maybe measured a little bit poorly, then, you know, you still, <laughs> still have a little bit of wiggle room or, or not. So that's where that cutoff point of five millimeters and, and, uh, and three millimeters is just because if yeah. you're uh, cleaning two millimeters inside the DEJ aggressively, you, there's no real risk of, of pulp exposure. And I would yeah. say I have about one pulp exposure every three months. Yeah. And, you know, 
I work on a lot of soldiers who have really, really awesome oral hygiene habits, just like some of your patients. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, you're just, you know that you're going to not have a caries free caries removal endpoint for your entire prep. But if you can be caries free in the critical areas, you can have a highly bonded perimeter to protect the mm-hmm. the lower bonded um, inner and outer carries that you're uh, bonding to. And so if you're not using carries detecting dye or using a diagnodent to confirm your carries removal endpoints, then yeah. you're not achieving the predictability that, that can be can be achieved and okay what's the um sorry to cut you off there what's what uh, brand of caries detector dye do you recommend so the original caries detecting dye was invented by takao fuziyama and he's also the father of adhesive dentistry he's the one that showed us that bonding to dentin was possible and the reason that he developed this this breakthrough technology in the late seventies was, you know, a dental student just asked him, Hey, how do I know when to stop? Just like you just asked, right? And you know, you know, the sensei, the, the, the teacher said, just go till it's hard. And then the student's like, well, how hard is hard? Yeah. (laughs) And being humble, instead of just blowing off the student, he said, well, let's try and figure out a more predictable way that actually shows us when we're at a caries free uh, um, spot. And so uh, the original formula was de- developed by Takao Fuziyama and Kurare uh, dental manufacturer uh, developed it and a little history on how it got FDA approval in the United States is, uh, Dr. Ray Bertolotti said, you know, I can help you guys get caries indicate caries detecting dye, you know, into the United States if, uh, and FDA approval, if you let me in on your secrets on how to, how to manufacture it and stuff. So Dan yeah. also makes a caries indicator that is identical to Kurare's caries detecting dye. Um, but yeah. Ultradent makes a, makes a good one seek. Uh, but my preference is is the original. It's red. Yeah. Some people find that a little intimidating, but I just say practice <laughs> measuring, increase your magnification, and I yeah. and I promise you, <laughs> red and pink, and pulp will will look different. <laughs> yeah. So in those cases where uh, where you do expose pulp, what's your protocol and like management there? Or is it just straight to endo? Well, first, or do you try and do like, Well, the first thing capping? I do is I swear. Yeah. <laughs> and then I tell myself that I won't tell my dad that I let him down. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'll be like, well, did you measure him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, but the, the, the protocol that I use just – is based off of the same principle as I'm doing with these indirect pulp caps is if I can create a perfect seal in those two millimeters of dentin and a millimeter and a half, two millimeters of enamel, 
then the pulp has a capacity to heal itself. And a researcher named Charlie Cox did some very good research on direct pulp caps with, uh, with dental adhesives. And yeah. He showed that if you can keep the, the tooth sealed where you're not having uh, micro leakage and a, and a free way for the inflammatory process to continue, that mm -hmm. there's a lot of these cases where the pulp will heal. And so I don't prescribe that you need to, you know, put a particular product over a, a pulp cap because the most important thing that you should do is you should never expose the pulp. Yeah. <laughs> if you do, what you, what you can do is you can, you need to get the, the bleeding to stop. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And so I've done in the past, I've taken, you know, one and 50,000 parts of epinephrine lidocaine on a cotton pellet, uh, let it sit on the, on the exposure on, or you can take a little bit of, uh, uh bleach on a cotton pellet, put it on there, you know, get the, get the heme to stop. And then, then I just go, go ahead with my bonding protocols. Mm -hmm. So, okay. so I will, you know, prime the tooth and then I'll place my adhesive and uh, it might not be a bad idea to when you're, when you're curing your adhesive, when you have an exposure to kind of do a little quick, a quick tack here mm -hmm. and then do another like second coat over the exposure. That way you're not overheating the pulp. Uh, I mean, I typically just, you know, do a full, a full cure, but if you're using some of those high powered lights, you know, that's not yeah. a bad, a bad idea, but uh you know, Charlie Cox, he's published, you know, these, uh, these studies and one of them, he showed histologic slides of, yeah. of these, these pulps that were, you know, exposed and, you know, doing a direct pulp cap with a self etch adhesive. Um, my preference is either SE protect or SE bond. SE protect has a nice antimicrobial, um, component, uh, to it, which is beneficial if you have exposed, um, yeah exposed a nerve but you know i'll always tell the patient look i i just tripled the chance of this tooth having to have a root canal because yeah. i drilled too much <laughs> <laughs> but if you do you know you know mta is a good a good material yeah. uh i wouldn't necessarily recommend dical or necessarily a resin modified glass ionomer but you know, if you can kind of keep, keep your pulp exposures to a minimum, minimum, and a mild self-etch adhesive, you know, you're, you're going to be able to, you're not going to negatively uh, impact the tooth by doing, you know, just a direct pulp cap with, with an adhesive. Now this mm -hmm. is uh, controversial and not taught in dental schools, uh, but I've met Charlie Cox multiple, on multiple occasions. I've, I've read a lot of his work and yeah, I tend to believe people that are smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, uh, that's a good way of, uh, kind of, but the most it. important thing is what don't expose, don't expose. Don't expose. That's the rule number one. <laughs> what about 
you know, cleaning your cavity preps, you know, some people, you know, just rinse it with water. Some people use like chlorhexidine, uh, any of those things that you routinely do at all or any recommendations around that? So when you're getting ready to bond, you will have endogenous proteases that will actually uh, decrease the strength of your bond up to 25 to 30% after a year. And so there's been some nice studies showing chlorhexidine to deactivate these MMPs that that will uh, degrade the bond. And so that's not a bad technique, especially if the adhesive that you're using doesn't, doesn't do anything for, uh, for those MMPs. Uh, Because if you just ignore those, you know, your day one bond will be different than your, your day 365 bond. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you properly treat these MMPs, then your initial bond strength that you got on day one will be very similar to the bond strength that you got uh, a year uh, from that time. And so using chlorhexidine is, is a biomimetic strategy to maintain a bond long-term. So the idea of using it for a, a disinfection, I don't really worry so much about that because bacteria will go to sleep if you have a good seal. It doesn't have any yeah. uh, food. It's not um, sipping on a Mountain Dew, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, that, that, that process of placing chlorhexidine can be redundant if you're using certain adhesives that that uh, that can deactivate those MMPs. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as all right, let, let me let me just uh, think about the the question. So the question was, uh, prep, what I'm doing to condition my my prep. Yeah. So the prep's all finished and you're like, okay, I'm, I want to start bonding it now. Like do the bonding protocol. Like, do you do something between when you finish your prep, like you've removed your caries detector and like you're happy with your caries, like endpoint where you're at. Are you doing anything between that step and starting the bonding protocol? So my question to you is, Omid, is what adhesive are you using? Yeah. So I'm using like th- uh, the 3M, like Scotch bond most of the time uh, in one of my practices. So not the best I know. And then my other practice we have, it's like G Premio bond. It's like, again, it's like one bottle. So I'm not, most of my places, I don't have a separate like priming bond that I'm doing, which I can see your face at now and you're not too happy, but. You're killing me. You're killing me. Yeah. I mean, your dental school, you had a universal bond. I mean. Universal. Yeah, I know. Okay. I need to get back to it. So if you're using either of those adhesives, you need to use a chlorhexidine 2% to, yeah. um, before you bond. But before you even do that, I would recommend that you air abrade the prep. So yeah, want, I'm doing that at least. Okay, I want you to think about when you prep a tooth, what, you know, what is the surface of the of the cut dentin? What are you what are you dealing with? Like exposed collagen tubules? Well, well yeah, so you you've cut a bunch of stuff, right? And you yeah. and you got kind of a it's like debris. You got you've got debris. Now, if you're using a a total etch system, you know, the the strength of the acid will be strong enough to penetrate that thick uh, smear layer. Mm -hmm. And and so your your primer is still effective. 
Whereas if you're using a cell fetch system, that 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 acid is a lot less mild. It's a lot milder. Yeah. And so it's going to have a diff, more difficult time to penetrate um, that that smear layer. Now, the best way to compact that smear layer and to remove some of the the really loose, fluffy kind of stuff is is air abrasion. And so it compacts yeah. the that smear layer and will actually use some of that smear layer to kind of plug those those, those tubules. You know how mm-hmm. and if you can do and if you can do that, then you still have all of the the benefits of a of a cell fetch, and it's able to to penetrate and to slightly demineralize the hydroxyapatite around the the collagen the collagen fibers. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah. So do you, so, so for example, let's just like walk through the situation. So I've done your prep. I'm using chlorhexidine. Do you just apply it and then dry it? And then you go on with your, like, do you do this after you etch or when do you do the, what's like the sequence of it? Okay. So, 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 so do you use your Scotch bond universal as a, as a self etch or a total etch or how do you, so normally, so I'll just, yeah, I'll go through mine and maybe we'll go through yours and see like where we differ and yeah. pick up some tips. So normally like, yeah, I've done my prep. I like sandblast or like uh, air braided and then I do total etch and then I put the scotch bond and cure. Okay. So you're using it as a, as a kind of a etch and rinse, a two step. Yeah. Um, system. Mm-hmm. And so if you're doing it that way, you would etch and rinse and then place your chlorhexidine and then uh, lightly dry and then place your, place your adhesive. So when you place the etch, it'll actually, the, the acidic component will actually upregulate those, um, those proteases, those MMPs and, and cause some issues. So, so if you're using a total etch, you should place your chlorhexidine after you etch and before you prime. Whereas if you're using it as using a self etch, you would place your chlorhexidine before you place the, like the primer. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So you don't, so you never rinse it off. You just, you apply the chlorhex and then just kind of air dry it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, you know, when you're dealing with a, a total etch, you have to kind of worry about like over drying that kind of stuff. Whereas if it's uh if it's a self etch, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as over drying because it's it's so mild and you're not going to have the collagen yeah. scaffold kind of collapse on itself. Yeah, so it's a little bit more uh, tricky. So you're normally what's your part? So it's just uh, you know for the listeners, say you're doing a lower molar like large deep occlusal. Talk talk to me like through your whole process if you don't mind, like how you kind of uh, go from you've you're you're happy with your prep is that to finishing off the restoration so the first thing i do is you know anesthetize the patient yeah and then i'll uh, place my rubber dam i joke with my assistant that you know we've got two jobs and one is it you know always have music playing and the other one is to help me put the rubber dam on after that she can go to sleep (laughs) (laughs) but the most important thing that i that i'll focus on is you know my carriage removal endpoint so I don't want to 
you know, gloss over that. The most important thing in a biomimetic restoration is your caries removal endpoint and not exposing uh, the nerve. And so I will, I will go until my peripheral seal zone is caries free. And the way that I determine caries free is not by a, uh, a subjective hard, soft feeling, but rather uh, an objective one where I'm using a caries detecting dye and I'm removing all pink and all red stain two millimeters inside of the DEJ. Yeah. And once I've gotten that, <clears throat> I'll assess the depth and see if I need to go, you know, further uh, pulpally or axially based off of um, the parameters that I still have uh, to, to, to go with there. And then after that, I will air abrade the prep and then rinse and rinse and dry really well. Now the adhesive that I use is, is SC protect. It's a two step uh, self etch adhesive. And so there's been studies to, that show if you actually dry the, the tooth prior to using a self etch adhesive, you will increase the bond strength, you know, an additional 10%. And so I'll air dry the, the tooth, you know, pretty, pretty well before I begin my priming step. Uh, yeah. With SE Protect, there's a monomer called MDPB, and it's, um, it's the monomer that QRA developed after MDP. So everybody's heard of MDP, right? Yeah. And every, and every, every uh, dental manufacturer is like, our adhesive now has MDP, yeah. right? <laughs> Scotchbond Universal, it's got MDP. We can, yeah. we can bond predictably, which has never been something that 3M could say honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so, as, so as bad as I think uh, Scotchbond Universal is, it's better <laughs> than some of the other Scotchbonds. Yeah. But the reason why everybody's using MDP is because the patent expired two yeah. three years ago and so it isn't a new technology it's not a new monomer um, yeah but everybody recognizes that that's what made se bond so uh such a breakthrough adhesive and the adhesive right after se bond that qra manufactured was se protect and the monomer mdpb has two additional carbons and a, a functional monomer of pyridinium bromide and this pyridinium bromide is antibacterial and will actually deactivate those MMPs. And so you don't actually nice. need to use chlorhexidine if you're using SC protect because it, it kills bugs and it also deactivates the, the MMPs and the lead researcher on that is, uh, uh, Sato out of Japan. And so what I'll do is I'll air dry my den for, you know, 10 seconds. Then I'll prime it. I'll prime for 20 seconds. And there's no way you can over, over prime a tooth with, with like SE bond or SE protect. And so, you know, I'm just being a little OCD whenever I'm priming the tooth. That's like the most important parts is I really yeah. want to get, you know, these, hydrophilic monomers encapsulating the uh the collagen fibers 
And the so you're like scrubbing pretty hard with like the micro brush. Yeah, I'm, like I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, making sure I'm getting all the surfaces, you know, very, yeah. very well. And then mm -hmm. the next question is, how do I get the solvent that's carrying these hydrophilic monomers in my primer, you know, out? And so what I'll do is I'll, you know, I'll air dry that very, uh, you know, pretty aggressively for about 10 seconds where I have my assistant with the, with the suction where I'm getting negative yeah. aspiration and then I will uh, air dry the, the prep, um, the prep as well. And then when the dent is, you know, fairly uh, shiny and I'm not seeing any fluid movement of additional primer, then, then I'm ready to bond and I'll take, you know, my adhesive and I'll, and I'll place it, place my adhesive. I don't air dry it. There's no solvent. There's no reason to air dry a bond. Okay. A solvent. So you don't need to like thin it out or like uniform it. No, you, I mean, you do want to get it uniform because it will be a uh, radio loosened if it pools, especially yeah. band. And so taking a dry brush is the best way to uh, wick away that, uh, that excess, but I don't want to in okay, air into my adhesive. As soon as I introduce air into my adhesive or I thin my adhesive out, there's a possibility that as the polymerization of my adhesive happens, that the air interaction will create an unbonded film. We've all heard of the oxygen inhibited layer, right? Yeah. And so if you've got this unbonded film and you're in a deep prep, then there is a possibility that you will have transudation and you'll have irregularities in your hybrid layer. And this is one of the reasons why I'm very against really thin adhesives because, mm -hmm. you know, your air inhibited layer is not insignificant and you can easily air, air thin an adhesive to the point where you're getting zero bond or you yeah. put your next, your, your resin coat on top of it. That's really interesting. So you, you apply the bond with a micro brush and then you get another second dry micro brush and just kind of go over it. Just yeah, dab so it I usually just go right, you know, in the box where I've already placed my, uh, my, my band and I will just, mm -hmm. uh, you know, wick away any, any excess or if there's like a, an area that you could just see the adhesive pool, I'll just take a, a, a small dry micro brush and kind of, uh, you know, wick it away. So, uh, what about, uh, I've seen some people use like suction, like they'll bring the high volume suction after they've applied the bond instead of blowing it. I mean, I would say that that is similar it, theory as the blowing the yeah, air. I would say it's maybe a little bit better, but I would say it's unnecessary. Mm -hmm. There are some specific advantages of a thick adhesive and, you know, the best adhesive that every manufacturer compares itself to is Optibond FL. And the thickness mm -hmm. of Optibond FL is it's very thick. thick. Yeah. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's 80 microns compared to SC Bond, which is about 40 microns. And then everybody else is like 10 to 20 and your air inhibited layer is about 15 microns. And so it can be <laughs> yeah. you know, pretty touch and go, depending on what <laughs> adhesive you're using. Yeah. So, the idea of a thick adhesive doesn't bother me, but I don't want, you know, a big radiolucency that if a dentist sees, you know, they go to another dentist and they see, you know, a little area where 
adhesive pooled up against my band and they think, oh, you know, there's a large void or there's recurrent decay. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the main reasons why to wick, wick it away. 